Shop of Maniacs. It's time for another Shop Talk show. I'm not Dave Rupert. Uh, with me is uh, uh, an alternate co-host, Adam Wathan. Did I have it right? Or is it... Wa- oh, do your... Wathan, but w- Wathan is good, too. I get different I like versions Wathen. of that every day, so... Uh, and this is... Kind of the fun. lazy way. Yeah. Say it as lazy Wathen. as possible. Uh, it should be good. That, I like that. Yeah, that it makes sense. Wathan. You know, like, <laughs> if you don't have much energy, you just say it like that. You have your own show. This is a crossover show. This is This is Adam from Full Stack Radio, right? Yep, that's right. Thanks for having me, dude. I really appreciate it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we'll answer some questions together. But first, I want to like talk to you a whole bunch. You know, it's like that's the best part is getting to know somebody's past and what they do and why they do it in a way. And we do some of that here on Shop Talk Show as well. So what I found while just, you know, knowing you just over social media and how you know people in today's world is that the name of your radio show is so appropriate because of just looking at the kind of the major things that you've done over at least the past few years. So maybe we'll just, we'll just rewind a few years to, to early 2016 and you end up dropping a book that ends up doing pretty well for you called Refactoring to Collections, which here's the tagline, a book and video course that teaches you how to apply functional programming principles to write clean, maintainable, wait for it, PHP. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, awesome. Which I I have nothing. I don't, I'm not going to like weigh in on whether PHP is is cool or not. I don't, I don't, I don't care. It's a perfectly good programming language. If you ask me that many of my sites run in, but still, how did you end there? What was that all about? Uh, so I'm, the story there is kind of a long one, but the, the short version is basically when I was in school for uh, software engineering, we had a lot of flexibility in terms of like what technologies we could use for projects and stuff. And what they taught us primarily was Windows based stuff because Windows, you know, or Microsoft, they sponsor schools and give them free licenses for stuff and that sort of thing. So we did lots of C Sharp and .NET stuff in school. But I was the only guy in my class that had a Mac. And doing Windows development on a Mac was pretty painful. Like, either I had to use, like, a VM or boot camp or something like that. So uh, when we had, like, some flexibility and could, like, make some decisions for ourselves about what technology to use for some of these projects, I thought, well, what could I do that I could use on my Mac natively and not have to run these VMs and stuff? And... And from my teenage years of building little websites and knowing that, well, whenever I had a form submission that I need to handle or something, I had to write some PHP. That's what you put on the server, right? Um, I didn't know that you could do anything else on the server. I thought like PHP and like JSP and ASP, those were like your three options, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, let's see what's out there in the PHP world that sort of uh, is comparable to some of the like .NET MVC framework and stuff that we've been learning in school. And that's when I stumbled into stuff like Code Igniter and Laravel in the really early Laravel mm-hmm. days. And uh, I just started using that for all my stuff. And by the time I realized that things like Ruby on Rails and Node existed and stuff, it was just sort of too late. I was just too comfortable <laughs> with the technologies that I had. Uh, and I've just been uh, deep in the PHP world ever since. So, Okay, yeah. cool. So so in those college days or, or, or whatever, were you... You know, everybody else around you has a has a Windows machine, but you were the you were like the lone Mac yeah, ranger lone and, and just Mac weren't guy. interested in weren't interested I, in giving it up for a It's Windows so funny, man. I'd have people time. come up to me in class and be like, So you got a Mac, eh? Like, how do you program on that? Like, what's that like for programming? Isn't it kind of just like a Fisher Price computer? You know, <laughs> people which is funny now because like you go to a con- a web conference and you look in the crowd and it's just like a sea of glowing little apples, you know. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, yeah, it's kind right. of funny. That, how, I mean, it was it was fun to live through that change of like a yeah. dev coming up now and maybe sees it the other way. Well, this I wasn't know even my that long. Dave ago. on Windows is oh yeah, right. yeah. I, I only I've only been out of college for about five years. So I went back to college okay. late when I was like twenty five, kind of like a second mm-hmm. career sort of thing. Uh, so I'm 31 now. So yeah, about five years ago, everyone was running their Windows gaming laptops, ignoring the teacher while they played Diablo 2 or whatever. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, I just, I, I feel that I was, you know, I was computer science for a minute too. I ended up not getting my degree in that, but did four years of it. And it was also kind of the the lone Mac guy yeah. even back then. It was, it was I guess, five years before you yeah uh, but still that's just the way it was and I ended up switching to kind of graphic design and ended up getting a degree um kind of with mm-hmm. an arts degree focused on ceramics but all the computer class that was a whole mac land over there totally different building and i remember that being kind of a brush breath of fresh air being like i don't know like i'm not gonna switch too late i like my mac i'm an apple fanboy sorry and but you know, and then getting to to work in design software and what little programming we did on that side of the world on Macs just felt so much better for me. Yeah. Uh, but whatever, you know, I'm not I'm not like anti Windows. I don't care. Seems like Windows is coming along though. I mean, like a lot of people lately are talking about uh, giving it a spin again with some of the controversial Apple hardware decisions and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Dave did it. He's he's full in his years into it and doesn't regret it at all. So he's the guy to talk to. Um, so you could you could see somebody, you know, hey, here's Adam. He just wrote a book about re, you know refactoring PHP into collections. He's a back end guy, you know. And then, but I'm sure your life was more complicated than that. But you could see how somebody might think of you in that way after a launch like that. And then, you know, fast forward to to kind of. Early early 2017 or mid 2017, and I was looking at here's another thing that that you're known for in this world is this Tailwind CSS library that you yeah. work on. I scrolled back in the commits a little bit earlier today. <laughs> it looked like the the first commit was about June. I think it was June 2017. Yeah, so th- that right. was kind of yeah, or, or July. It looks like so so, and then not, it's not that much longer than that. Only a year later. So you've been working on this thing for about a year now yeah. or something. You, so yep. you so you've have you turned into a I I shouldn't even phrase it like that. You have you're a CSS person too. So you're a PHP guy turned CSS guy. No, you're a full stacker. That's why you got the show. You know? Yeah. Anyway, but what's Tailwind CSS? Yeah. Okay. So. I mean, Tailwind CSS is like a utility-focused CSS framework, right? There's a bunch of them out there. It's just kind of like my uh, my take on it, trying to solve some of the the problems that I think I could solve better than some of the tools that were out there, and some of the kind of little annoyances that I had with other stuff that that made me want to build my own thing, which for the most part was stuff around um, customization. So, like the story for me is really. I use Bootstrap for so long, right? And I think Bootstrap's a great project and I have a ton of uh, respect for it. But eventually they made the decision to switch to SaaS from less. And I just loved less so much because of a couple little things that it could do uh, that you can't easily do in SaaS um, that I guess like nobody else really cared about, which the main thing for me was unless you could use other classes as mixins, right? There was no real difference between like a mixin and a class. Like a mixin with no parameters was just a class. So if I had a utility like text primary or something, I could mix that into another class by just saying 
you know, maybe I have like a button class and I just say dot text primary inside of there and I'm done. So I had this workflow a lot of time where I would be kind of like composing classes out of other classes that I had. And when I'm trying to move to SAS, it just became so much more boilerplate because if I wanted to do that, I had to create a mix-in, then I had to mix that mix-in into like a utility class and mix that mix-in into a button or something. So it just felt like a little bit more work. And because of the order that SAS is evaluated in, you have to be really careful about like where mix-ins are uh, defined and stuff like that. Whereas in less, I could define a class right at the end of my less file and use it as a mix in right at the beginning. And it still worked totally fine. Um, so that little workflow that I, I really enjoyed, um, was kind of stolen from me in the bootstrap world when they switched to SAS. And those were the kind of classes you were writing, right? Like text primary. And you, even in those days you were thinking in kind of a d- descriptive atomic kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely got like, m- magnified and amplified uh throughout mm-hmm. over time right um so yeah so the other thing was with with bootstrap and a lot of other frameworks out there inevitably like the defaults just don't work for every project right like every project kind of like has a unique look some unique design and there was not a lot of like really great guidance around how to customize a, the framework to make it I can tell you, I still don't really know the answer to that. Like if you're to make, I'm sure a lot of people do. So this is just my ignorance. But if you spun up a bootstrap project right now and you wanted to fully kind of customize it for for what you are doing, do it feels like there's two paths. Do you A, just edit the crap out of bootstrap files, which seems like the cleanest way to do it because then you don't have, you're not like writing CSS on top of an overwriting CSS. But then now your upgrade path is destroyed. Totally. And Or do you write CSS on top of, yeah, um, and you and just try and override yeah. some stuff. So, like, if their button comes with some padding value, you just define button again with a, a new padding value. Or the other option, right, is to make a copy of their variables file and go through and change that. But even there, there's all sorts of, like, unpredictable consequences. Like, you might change something in a spacing scale and not realize that that changes the vertical padding in a list group somewhere that breaks your design because everything is kind of... It's it's trying to be like connected and relative in, in like an intelligent way, so things like scale and stay kind of proportionate, but um, it can still be challenging and cause like unexpected consequences. But yeah, the main thing is just that there was no real explained sort of approved customization path, um, and I think there's like one documentation page in Bootstrap now that talks about like customization, but. I just never felt confident. I, I, I'm one of those people where like, I don't really like to, not that I don't like to figure things out for myself. I love figuring things out for myself, but I'm always questioning my own decisions and second guessing everything. So it really helps me a lot if I know like, what is the idiomatic approved way to do this? Like if Mark Otto was going to customize bootstrap, what is exactly what he would do? I want to know what that is so I can do the exact same thing and not do it in some weird way that has some problems I don't know about. Right. Um, so that was kind of like the main hurdle for me with a lot of other tools out there. So I wanted to build something that really made customization like a super first class citizen and, uh, and provided a lot of guidance around how to do it in sort of like the official way. Um, so that was kind of my main motivation for trying to create my own version of a CSS framework. Did you uh, did you have a, a thought at first, maybe I'll make something like bootstrap though that has components and it has 
you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, totally. it's to be used in a similar way, but just with some kind of different philosophy. Yeah, and, and that is how it started before it had a name or anything. It was just a bunch of less files that I was bringing around from project to project um, with buttons and, and little components like that. And um, what I noticed, though, is every time I moved to a new project, those sorts of files, like buttons and stuff like that, those are the components that I had to go and change. I had to go change the source files for those. And it kept like making me realize like, you know, I can't just install, I couldn't just put this on NPM and install it because those are going to live in node modules or whatever. I can't like easily make customizations there. Mm -hmm. But the only classes that were like truly surviving from project to project were the really low level stuff that pretty much just mapped to a single CSS property, like margin left this or Z index that, that sort of stuff. Okay. So you, so you're like, Oh, I, I totally follow you here. Like I can't, you want to be able to NPM install something you want. You're thinking of this. I want my, some kind of style framework thing to be a dependency that isn't monkeyed with. It's exactly. The yeah. Way it is. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I don't know what's, I guess there's a couple of different approaches to that, but you picked one, one way. <laughs> yeah. So we started it as a less framework with the same sort of bootstrappy approach where you'd have just like a variables file. And because of the amount of customization that like we wanted to be able to provide, um, I was just doing things with less that I don't know that anybody else has ever done <laughs> and just like trying to hack around it in a way that was just so painful. And you do it in less where it was like, you, maybe you have like a thousand classes and, but they're not, when you compile less, they don't compile. Like in SAS, that's the thing with the, I don't know, the number sign, I guess. Like yeah, like the, the placeholder classes. Right. Yeah. But in, in less, isn't there like an, just like, you can like import a style sheet that's only for extending from? Yeah, you can do like um, import reference or something like that. Right. Right, uh, and then pull. so your your authored style sheet could just be using it as like you know dot class, you know, and just a the yeah. mix in style. Assuming you just wanted like a mix in library for sure, then you could do it that way. But then you'd be on the hook for defining all these classes that you actually want to use in your HTML uh, yourself, right? Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. So I mean, the challenges were things like with less, there's no loops or anything like you have in SAS, right? So. Um, you have to do all this crazy recursive mix-in stuff to generate classes and stuff like that. And it just started getting really, really hairy. And then a buddy of mine, David Hemphill, who's also like a core contributor to the project, um, was telling me about some post-CSS stuff. And post-CSS is one of those projects where I think like everyone kind of knows at a super high abstract level, like what it is, you know, it's like, okay, it's a thing for processing CSS and changing it after it's done, but it's not a pre-processor. It's a post-processor and you get like an abstract syntax tree and you can walk it and change yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I, I see how that's cool. I see how that's like useful for tools like auto prefixer, but I hadn't really seen anyone talk about like, how do I make this like crazy customizable CSS framework using post CSS? Like what are the, what are the tools that PostCSS gives me to like generate my own classes or provide configuration and stuff like that? So my buddy David, who had messed around with it a bit, kind of like opened the doors for me there in terms of explaining like what your options were. And basically, like the gist of it is, you know, you have at rules in CSS, right? Like a media at media or like at char set or um, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Post CSS can parse anything that looks like an at rule, even if it's not like an officially spec supported at rule. And when you're walking the abstract syntax tree, you can see, okay, well, here's like, in our case, it's an at tailwind rule and I can just like delete it and put in any CSS I want instead. 
And um, when he sort of showed me like this approach to like at rules are kind of like your secret back door into like doing whatever you want in here, like dropping these little markers, my wheels started turning a little bit because um, all the problems that I was having with trying to use like less, which is meant to be like a declarative, like styling language as like this really <laughs> intense programming language, all those problems go away when I can just write the whole thing in JavaScript. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I moved to basically rewriting the whole thing as like a post CSS plugin where all of your CSS is generated from like JavaScript based configuration, kind of similar to what you'd have with like a Webpack config, right? So it's not even a JSON file. It's literally a JavaScript file where you can like require other libraries, have functions, do anything you want, like go as crazy as you want or as simple as you want, right? It can just be a static object if you want that kind of specifies all of your configuration options, or you can do fancy stuff to generate colors. Um, you know, you can have like a blue and then pull in some color library and generate five different shades of it by doing some math or whatever. Like it's it's totally up to you. But um, yeah, so what Tailwind ended up being is basically this configuration file that is like the source of truth for a bunch of generated CSS where you just drop these markers in your CSS file to say, this is where I want the Tailwind stuff generated and tailwind will just process your configuration file and generate classes from that and dump it into there okay so it's still a little bit like that or is it was this a middle phase so that is that's how it is now yeah okay but that is that it's a little bit optional to to even configure it at all right isn't there like a zero config kind of way yeah i mean like you can pull down like a cdn version of it right so um the configuration file for the most part is just like a bunch of, it's almost like a design system in, in JS, right? So you specify like a color palette, like a spacing scale, like a typography scale, um, what border radius right. values exist. Cause we are ultimately talking about a ma- a whole bunch of classes yes. and, and these class. And so you might write text gray, dark, but like this configuration will tell you, well, wh- what is gray dark? Exactly. You t- you tell me what gray dark is. So there's yeah. probably some kind of default for gray dark, but I can control it. If yeah. Like. And and it's not even that you can just customize what gray dark is. You can customize whether or not it exists, right? So by default, mm-hmm. we ship with like a literal color palette, right? So the colors are named after what they look like, red, orange, blue, that sort of thing. But you can 100% change your color palette to be like primary, secondary, um, subtle, whatever, like using more functional names instead of like just straight up explicit literal names. And then the generated classes will adopt that naming scheme too. Um, so it's totally customizable in that sense, which is, is nice if you want to go deep into the customization stuff. And the trade-off is just like many, there's a lot of different Tailwind projects that don't have a lot in common as a result of how customizable it is, right? Like mm-hmm. you might move from one project to another and now all the colors have different names and the spacers that exist are different. And someone's decided to use like a numeric text size scale. And like by default, our text sizes are like SM for small, base for like your root yeah. size, LG, XL, 2XL. Someone might change that to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? So um, depending on how crazy you want to go with the configuration, it can be hard to look at two pieces of HTML from two different projects and tell that they're even using the same CSS framework, which is nice in terms of how much power and control you have, but a bit of a curse in terms of there being like a lot of consistent, uh, you know, crossover. But I guess the tool projects. behind it all is consistent, you know, yeah. the tool that generates yeah. it. Yeah. So Tailwind is like a CSS framework, but it's also like a CSS framework 
generator and like a meta. Web. And how are these config files? Are they are they massive? You know, like so. In the, the sort of the beauty of it is you can do it in JavaScript, so that you have like kind of extreme control, right? Like yeah. like you were saying, if you really did want, like I know there's a color package on npm that can generate do all kinds of fancy color stuff. Now you have that at your fingertips here, and uh, yeah. which is kind of neat. Yeah, so so the default configuration file is big. It's 952 lines, <laughs> which sounds intimidating, but when you actually look at it, it's mostly... Is it boilerplate? The point of that is to give you... It's like when you used to give somebody a jQuery plugin with like every single option, it's just so you know what's there. Totally. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, sh- I'll send a link to you in the chat here in case you want to look at it, and people listening yeah. can maybe take a peek in the show notes or whatever uh, if we get too deep into it and they want to follow along. Uh, but I just fired you off a link to like the default uh, configuration file. And you can kind of see it's broken up into a bunch of different sections based on like what you're customizing, right? Like you can specify yeah. what your responsive breakpoints are. This would be familiar are. to most people, yeah. It's a bunch of colors. It's a bunch of breakpoints. It's a bunch of font stacks. Like there's nothing in here that's intimidating. At totally. All. And there's two kind of approaches, right? You could either generate this file from like our CLI tool and then just go in there and customize it as much as you want. Um, or you can actually just create your own file from scratch where you import our default configuration because it's just pulled in with NPM, right? So you can just like require Tailwind CSS default config that comes in as an object. And then you can just override the parts that you want or merge in the different stuff that you want. So if there's defaults that you like or defaults where if they change, you want to get the updates and you don't want to just completely blow them out, you can sort of extend the default configuration dynamically instead of just replacing it too. Oh yeah, that's probably what I would do. That seems safe. Um, so there was, so you get it configured just the way you want it, and then you run it, and you, and what you you are going to get, you know, hundreds of kilobytes of CSS though. Still, right? That's still kind of yeah, the point. kind of this d- is depending can, on how you've got it configured. It can be megabytes of CSS, or it can be <laughs> uh, hundreds of kilobytes, uh, because like we we not only generate all these classes like you know BG red or BG blue or whatever. Um, there's variants too. So like if you only want to change the background color on hover, you would generate versions of all those classes that have a hover colon prefix so that in your HTML, you can say, well, this div should be red. So it's BG red, but on hover, I want it to be BG red dark. So I just say BG red space, hover colon BG red dark space, focus colon BG blue or active, you know, all these different variants can exist. You have control over which ones are generated. Um, but if you want to generate all of them for every kind of, you know, CSS module that we have in here, all these different types of utilities, then it can be, uh, really wild in size. Um, so yeah, which maybe leads into another interesting conversation. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you by the widely beloved Digital Ocean. So here's the URL I'm going to send you to my favorite URL in the world do.co slash shop talk of course it is that's a hundred bucks of free credit if you go to that url so you might as well do that especially if you're playing around want to check it out spin some stuff up so so digital ocean is the easiest cloud platform to run and scale applications from effortless administration tools to robust compute storage and networking devices digital ocean provides an all-in-one cloud platform to help developers and their team save time when running and scaling their applications. So, and pricing is a big deal. So, so predictable and affordable pricing, you know, leave those complex pricing structures behind. Always know what your business is going to pay per month with industry-leading price performance. 
uh, 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 balance there. So it's a flat pricing structure across all their global data center regions. So it's we're talking about scalability, flexible configurations for literally any application, industry-leading price to performance, uh, uh, price that's consistent across regions, rapid provisioning, super predictable costs, hourly billing, and you get monitoring and, alert, uh, uh, monitoring and alerting uh, included. So again, the URL, do.co slash shop talk. Okay, so you get this huge piece of piece of CSS, though, but you didn't author it. It was kind of machine authored. And so philosophically, you do have to buy into this idea that this is how I want to style things. I don't want to write dot card. I want to write BG light, color, dark, you know, rounded corners for whatever. So the, in, and in that way, we people think of the word atomic CSS. Do you put this tailwind in this category of atomic yeah, CSS? Yeah, so, I mean, that leads into like another kind of design decision or another kind of place in the CSS framework market that we wanted to fill, I think, which is, I think historically there's been kind of like a people look at it as very black and white, right? Like there's people who want to use like um, a much more semantic approach to CSS, like quote unquote semantic, or even like just component based, even if the components are still fairly visually sure. named, like a bootstrap with its card and list group. Those are still kind of like UI components. They're not like named after like dot testimonial or dot user profile or something like that. You know what I mean? There's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, but then there's been a lot of stuff that exists in the sort of the, the functional or atomic space that takes like a very um, strong stance on like, you should only be styling things uh, this way. If you want to reuse kind of patterns of utility classes, well, we sort of have this assumption that you're building a React SPA or something. So why don't you just make like a new component that has all those classes in there and now you're not duplicating them because you're just creating a new instance of that component every time or something, right? Oh, sure. That so that sense. that's sort of like an approach or a mentality that I've seen where people are usually just saying push the reusability to like the template layer instead of the CSS layer. But um, me personally... I don't build like a lot of SPAs or anything like that. Not everything's component driven. A lot of time I'm just building a simple static site or some like Laravel project or something, which is Railsy. you know, it's like server generated HTML and stuff. And it's not practical to kind of push all that reusability stuff to the template layer. Sometimes I do, do like, I want a button class or an alert class or something like that. Right. That is true. Right. Cause I mean, just to, just to not, not to, beat around the bushes. I think some people, like if you look, go look at the Tailwind docs and you say, what is Tailwind? There's, you know, one of the demos you have there is like a card-like thing right away. Yeah. And you'll look at the HTML for it and it's just littered in classes. Totally. I mean, I get it. So I, you know, I, I understand what you, I haven't yet, uh, to, you know, in fairness here, I've never done a project like this before, but I do, I do like, I like uh, in some part of me kind of likes it. Some part of me kind of likes the idea that we author no CSS here at this <laughs> shop. Pretty much, we yeah. just configure some CSS, and then everything that we could conceivably do is based on these classes. And in a sense, we've gotten to like slice out a language out of our stack totally. almost. Yeah, and that we know that it's really never going to grow, and we know that it's super duper optimized and all this stuff. I haven't yet done it because I I also I just kind of 
in some part of me just write CSS kind of quote unquote traditional kind of way, yeah. and it for the most part works fine for us and whatever you know. Like, but I, but I, you know, I think it's worth digging into this. I think some people can look at this and just they have some kind of really emotional reaction to this. I would say most people, not even some yeah. people, like most people, <laughs> myself, myself included. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but you're it's like, one of those things. this is very different. I have to get myself in a different mindset. And the, okay, let, but let's say you're past that. Like now I, I've, I can stomach it and I get it, but I still want to make a button. Like you're about to go, I just, I just want to put dot button on something and I don't want to tell you what background color, how border radius it is, what font to use. Like I'm going to reuse this button a hundred times. I can't put 50 classes on it every time. So tell me about that. Yeah, there, there's practical reasons for that too, right? It's not just like, like you said, like you have to get over this like visceral reaction to seeing nine classes on an element and being like, this is disgusting because that's a reaction that everybody has. Um, but once you get past that, there's still this like real practical concern of, okay, my site has a hundred buttons on it and I want them all to look the same. And if I change the border radius on this button, I don't want to have to go searching through the code base and find where I used those nine classes every single time and update the border radius on every single one. Okay, so let's tackle it now. Is this a config issue? Can I solve this? So the way that we saw this in Tailwind is heavily inspired by what I talked about right at the beginning of our conversation with how less lets you use classes as mix-ins. So if you're actually on that Tailwind What is Tailwind page, which I think was the one you were looking at that had that card there, and you scroll down to the very next section where that's labeled component friendly. Mm-hmm. So this kind of talks about how we how we give you tools to solve that problem because I'm fully on board with people who are like, I want to be able to solve some of this duplication stuff in CSS. Like I just want to be able to apply one class in 10 places and just change that one class and have all 10 of those places update. Right. I'm totally on board with that. And I totally understand why that's a practical need that people have on probably the majority of web projects, you know, the, the, the ignored majority of people building WordPress themes and stuff like that, not these crazy Gatsby projects or whatever. So anyways, the, the, the main mechanism for this is this like at apply directive that we have, which is kind of like a custom tailwind at rule where you can write some CSS like dot button, but then instead of specifying like the font weight, the padding, the border radius, the color, all that stuff using regular CSS properties, you can just drop in this. Yeah, it's, it's literally a mix-in, but it's one that takes multiple class names, it looks like. That's it's a mix-in that you just copy and paste the class names from your HTML, put it into your CSS, then replace the class name. So everything is still sort of like composable in that sense like you're not putting in a bunch of like custom values and stuff like that and risking kind of having inconsistencies in your kind of visual design of your app right like you're still only working with these sort of list of approved values you know what i mean so it gives you like a nice sort of controlled way to extract this duplication into these reusable classes um in like a really really nice quick workflow too because you're literally just copying and pasting the list into your css doing a little switcheroo on the class attribute and you're you're good to go so that was a really important thing for us at the beginning because i know so many people are hesitant to to try this sort of super utility focused way of styling things uh, because they don't want to like completely abandon everything that they believe or know about writing CSS. So this is sort of a way to keep like... It looks like it splits the middle a little. I feel like Dave Semantics Rupert might enjoy that kind of thing. Hey, Dave. Hey, I heard my name. and just thought I'd drop in late after a client meeting. Hey, how's it going? Everybody? Hey. <laughs> no. 
Sorry, I really wanted to be. Um, I apologize for how late I am, obviously, and you'd never apologize on podcasts. We all know that because we're all <laughs> podcasters. Uh, but I really wanted to be here because I keep getting told I uh, am ignorant about uh, utility atomic CSS. So I'm very excited. That did come up the other day. So Dave, we're, we've we've dug into the tailwind thing a little bit here, which is which is pretty fascinating. So it's uh, there's a lot of ways that people might have come across a tailwind. I feel like in their in their travels on the universe and be like, or let's say you're even going to use it on CodePen, which which absolutely at the moment can't like run your JavaScript configuration for for it, you know, but it, you could still play with Tailwind, but you'd just be linking to a CDN hosted compiled default version of it. And in that case, it would be it would be more like something like Tachyons or whatever, which is similar, but it's just like here's some classes, have fun, and it's and it's some it's some number of kilobytes big, and then you'd be forming your opinion of this library based on like, wow, that's a lot of CSS. This library must suck. They must be idiots, kind of thing, and not un- kind of see the. I don't know the nuance of what's what's possible with it when you're actually like running it in a in a production kind of world. So yeah, can I? I guess my question is because you know I think I committed the grave mistake of saying, oh, it, you know these atomic utility libraries are like a hundred k of CSS, and somebody was like, you dummy, uh, that is <laughs> so wrong, and I was like, okay, because like in there, you know they're specifically we're like check out tailwind and i was like okay i'll check out tailwind well tailwind you know it's like ships down like 25k which is you know gzip minified gzip but it's still like 300k you know on totally. cdn well and adam was just saying it might even be megabytes it, of CSS it can be megabytes get- of css it can be like absolutely enormous to the point where like something i never appreciated that i have more appreciation for now than ever is whoever is programming like the css parsers and stuff for browsers those people are computer science geniuses because mm-hmm. you can drop in a five megabyte tailwind generated css file and the browser renders it instantly like yeah. how are these people parsing like twenty five thousand lines of css and applying it to the dom immediately it blows my mind so yeah uh, like they, but yeah like- Browser's ability to figure it out is pretty incredible, I guess. But but I think like the nuance that I was missing, and I think I came in at just the right time to kind of hear. Um, you know, there's you know you you can like custom configure it, but uh, at least with Tailwind, there's a whole separate kind of tool chain that works into it, and and you know then people are like and you use purge css you dummy and then it works and i was like I, well that was something i wasn't well, we didn't with, even so. we didn't even get there yet do you want to is that what i i would like to know is that well because okay you ended up let's say you do end up with a megabyte of css or two sure. or three or five or whatever yep. You would never ship five. Five seems like beyond the scope of reality. But maybe you might ship like 150 because then that's gzips down really small and it covers such a wide area that you're shipping kind of CSS yeah. that's probably going to cover like a whole hell of a lot of what you want to do. But there's this other option, part of your build process that could, as is, 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 is hesitant as I am to say this, but look at, do the fancy let me look at all your HTML. Let me look at all your JavaScript. Find out what you're using, and then slide out the stuff. And we could probably turn two megabytes of CSS into like eight k of CSS totally. or something. Yeah, right. So okay, do so you always do that? No, you you take it. There's two. There's two kind of like roads to go down here, right? So, um, first thing that's worth mentioning is like the default Tailwind configuration 
is intentionally super generous in terms of everything that it provides to you because that's what we base our CDN builds off of. And I think it would be really crappy for someone to try Tailwind through a CDN as their first experience and feel like, oh, there's only three blue variations. I need one in between. This framework sucks. Or there's not enough margin classes. This framework sucks. So we ship tons and tons of stuff by default. I think there's like 73 colors in the color palette by default, which is like uh, every color, like blue, for example, has lightest, lighter, light, base, dark, darker, darkest. So like seven shades of every single color in this color palette. And because we generate all your background colors, your text colors, there might be other stuff, border colors. Um, it generates something like 2,500 classes from those 73 colors, which is a lot of CSS. Um, but in the real world, like no project has 73 colors. Some projects do, but not intentionally. Right. Like, have you guys ever played around with CSS stats? Um, yeah, com yeah. or something? Yeah. You go in there and you pull up like some well known site and you see like 11 D shades of red that you can't even tell the difference between when you look with your eyes and I'm positive all that comes from people doing like darken 10% darken 12% or whatever in their yeah, yeah. SAS files or whatever and generating these unique colors. Oh, uh, I, I think it's the, when you guilty. use a color picker and get one little one, one pixel off. Oh uh, yeah. Your gamma is different. So you get a different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's so bad. Um, but yeah, in, in, in reality, you maybe have like 20 colors in a project or something, right? If you're being really kind of, strict about trying to keep your design system under control and that cuts like the whole generated css in half just by using fewer colors you know or maybe you don't need all five breakpoints maybe you only need three well we generate responsive versions of every single class in the framework so that's going to cut okay. things down so no wonder this snowballs so much you add one like more breakpoint right? yeah. one more breakpoint and zillions of extra classes exactly. get created exactly and on top okay. of that like so you can you can obviously change the amount of colors you're using, the amount of screen sizes you have defined, but you can also just go through and like disable different things that you're not using. Like say you're not using floats at all in a project, we can just disable the floats module. So um, that doesn't save you a ton, right? But what will save you is going through and being like, okay, I'm never changing the border color of something on hover. So why don't I just not generate the hover variants? Because that's probably like. 10k of css because there's 73 colors times five breakpoints times you know whatever mm -hmm. um so that's one way to sort of like battle that file size you you fight it at the beginning you prevent that stuff from ever getting generated which i think is like the approach that people like yourself and like me until i fully understood purge css so we can talk about that <laughs> um but you know it's it's easy to think like how can I ever trust something to reliably properly statically analyze this incredibly dynamic project and not have any like false positives or delete classes that I actually need because it couldn't find them or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which is a very understandable uh, concern. So by battling it at the config level, you can, you can keep your file size very realistic, like very reasonable um, without kind of venturing into those waters. You know what I mean? And even so, like the the CDN version is like 36 kilobytes minified and gzipped, which um, is big compared to every other framework out there because of how much stuff we ship by default. But it's also a lot smaller than it's it's a, it gzips better than almost every other framework because we've designed the class names to be as repetitive as possible. Um, so like 
you know with bootstrap for example you have like your responsive column sizes um so you have like call six but then you have call sm6 call md6 mm-hmm. because the screen size is right in the middle of the class name it can't gzip as well because the the repeating part of the string is smaller whereas with tailwind we put all those stuff as prefixes so if you have like a class like bg red and you want to change that on large screens it's lg colon bg red so the the full utility name is always consistent there so that can be completely gzipped out um so gzips really 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 well intentionally Uh, anyways it's still pretty small because if you look at like a real project on basically any app that you actually use uh, people have like 500 kilobytes of css after gzip i've seen on some real web apps that i use daily you know what i mean um so it's still yeah it's not like battling at the config level it's not going to be the smallest it could be but so there there's almost some irony here right that your people are saying tailwind is so big and then you're like yeah kind of is but have you seen websites yeah. Have you seen, <laughs> or have you I used guess, the internet? <laughs> <laughs> the average website is actually three megs, so we're doing pretty good. Um, but I think what I hear you saying is like, so Tailwind is designed kind of to cover a lot of use cases and and be um, customizable. Uh, so it is big, but it's also designed to gzip well. And yeah. and you've like considered that from the architecture of the class names yeah. and everything. Yeah, I, I think that's really impressive. So I think my next question, I have like a hundred questions, and so I'm glad I finally made it here. <laughs> um, uh, I guess so. The the restrictions or, or removing, you know, the purple colors. You know, where does mm-hmm. that happen? Does that happens in my config, or is that like happen on like on something like this purge CSS tool that? I need to use either both options you have available. So you can either go into your config file, which by default is just like a tailwind.js file that's generated in the root of your project. Although you can of course put it anywhere as long as your webpack configuration or whatever is pointing to the right path. But that's kind of where it just goes for most people. And there's just like a a section in there that defines the color palette and you can just delete the purples from there. And now you won't have purple text, purple borders, purple backgrounds, all that stuff will go away. Um, And then the other option is to, instead of trying to battle the file size up front, like we've talked about so far, is to try and strip out what wasn't used after the fact. And that's where a tool like Purge CSS comes into play. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can either explain everything I know about Purge CSS, or you guys can ask me your burning questions about why Purge CSS terrifies you. And I can try to (laughs) alleviate your concerns. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Yes. I need this. Um, well, shoot, I think, so can I take one step back? Yes. Up, just one step. So, you know, we talk about bootstrap, you know, and, and we're saying like, well, bootstrap's pretty heavy, like out of the box, it's like 238K or something like that, at least in my experience on a site I rolled out. Um, and then we get an angry email and it's like, uh, WordPress or, you know, or you can actually comment out things in the SAS file of bootstrap, you dummy. And I'm, it's like, okay, I'm not a dummy. I, I hope you guys know that. <laughs> um, but you know, in, in, and it's like, you can, you absolutely, absolutely can comment out SAS partials in the, the bootstrap main bootstrap SCSS, but like the majority of people do not. And, and I guess I'm wondering, is Tailwind kind of that, I guess, what's your experience in, in like production sites? Is it is it people are actively kind of 
manicuring this Tailwind JS file or, or, you know, are they that minded or is it kind of like, this is the next bootstrap man or, yeah. you know, what, what, yeah. what's your thoughts? I, I don't have a good like finger on that pulse in terms of knowing for sure what people are doing. Um, in like our Slack channel, for example, um, our Slack team, whatever the hell you call it, there's tons of people in there that are definitely heavily customizing um, the config file. Um, and I, we try really hard to make it clear in the documentation and stuff that like you own this file, like you're supposed to customize it. If you're shipping a site that has all the default Tailwind colors out of the box, like that's kind of weird. You're not supposed to do that, but we want to give you a good first run prototyping, play around, enjoy the framework experience. So we try to put a bunch of stuff there. Uh, but I make a lot of like code pen demos and stuff using the Tailwind CDN stuff. And I've made little demo projects for conference talks and stuff where I haven't tweaked it at all. Um, so you can actually like do pretty good in terms of building completely unique looking stuff without changing the defaults. Like for example, I, I did a live stream the other day where I tried to rebuild a screen from Netlify's backend and rebuild mm-hmm. the whole thing in Tailwind on a live stream in an hour and a half. And I didn't really customize any of Tailwind's built-in stuff, save for like one color or two. And I was able to basically rebuild it almost pixel for pixel, looking exactly like it did without customizing the config. And it's not like I had Netlify open when I was creating Tailwind in the first place and making sure that it was the perfect framework for making Netlify. Cause I've done the same thing with like Coinbase or Slack and gotten really, really close without having to, to change the defaults. So in terms of that problem that bootstrap has, and it's obviously not the fault of bootstrap, but just like how it gets used where you can spot a bootstrap site. I don't think you can spot a Tailwind CSS site the same way. And that's just because of the fact that we're not a component-based framework, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, you're going to be able to spot a bootstrap site more easily because they give you these higher-level primitives for people who don't want to be bothered figuring out how to perfectly design my tab component uh, or whatever. Uh, because we don't give you that stuff with Tailwind, like it's hard for two stuff, two sites to look the same, you know? You're less about the uh, functionality or of the components and the widgets and more about the, like, here's the set of utilities to style it however you want or yeah, with yeah, some constraints. Totally. Like the That's whole cool. goal is like to give you before I had tailwind, whenever I had to build a site that like was a completely bespoke design, it felt like my only option was open an empty CSS file and start building the whole thing from scratch. So tailwind is like my attempt at trying to put something together that gives me some sort of head start on the styling stuff without, um, enforcing any visual opinions and getting mm-hmm. in the way of me making this thing look like the design did, you know? See, on, on that, I think that's cool. I mean, uh, I think we all have the CSS file you've been copying and pasting, the starter file that you've been copying and pasting for 10 years, you know? This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you by HelloSign. That's hellosign.com slash shop talk which is where you want to go for the discount, of course. HelloSign helps companies grow revenue faster by automating document workflows within a developer-friendly e-signature API that makes it simple to embed secure and legally binding signatures into any website. So you need to collect signatures on documents. You can do that. That's what your customers expect, frankly. 
and uh, uh, they're legally binding, and you can bring that experience onto your own site with their API. So the API is always free during development, uh, which I love that because it's like, you know, you can play with this thing as much as you want with full functionality in development. Get it how you want, and then you decide you're going to go with it go into production, that's when you start paying for it, which is great. Developers can send a first API call in minutes and the app certification is free. So you just, it's just, you won't find an e-signature product with a with an easier path to implementation. There's tons of docs, there's tons of features. There's a really nice dashboard for it all. It's twice as fast as any other e-signature API. And and and, and, and all, of the, all this code that you get to implement it uh, for free, it's just, there's, code to do that with. So the URL again is hellosign.com slash shop talk. That gets you 33% off new years, new users uh, uh, and business plans. So check them out. Hello Sign's awesome. I'd love to like take one second to step as high up an abstraction as we possibly can here and say, Why? Why would I work this way? What does this do? In terms of why would you like want to style in your HTML? Or? Why would I? Why, yeah. Why would I pick Tailwind? You know. So, I pick Tailwind because I wrote it, so I inherently like it better <laughs> than any alternative. Thus, it is superior. But uh, I guess it depends, like where you're coming from. If you're coming from like a looking at the entire landscape of all CSS frameworks that exist, why would I choose Tailwind? The answer is basically the same as like, why would I choose any functional or atomic-ish CSS framework, which for the most part to me is because you're trying to build something that you are making some unique design, unique not in the sense that, oh, it's the only website on the internet that has this amazing, unique visual style, but just like, I don't want to be constrained by like the bootstrappy lookingness of bootstrap or the foundation-y lookingness of foundation or, or whatever, right? I just want to be able to work at the lowest level I can and create exactly what I want, but still have some sort of head start. Um, so if you've already sort of like bought into that and you are looking for a utility framework, then I would say the the sales pitch for Tailwind is mostly like the customization stuff and on, on top of that, just the fact that we understand that you are still going to want to write component classes sometimes, like buttons or cards or alerts or whatever. And um, instead of like poo-pooing that, we give you tools to make it easier and to make it faster. That's almost the most confusing part to me in a way. So I would think one of the reasons you might go down this road is so that your CSS is like, like nobody's writing any. You have this yeah. whole team of people styling things and nobody's writing CSS because you just use these classes that are available to you and thus your CSS can't get out of hand or become a problem or be, have merge conflicts or who knows yep. whatever the the, the structure the stuff is. But except for until you start doing the part you just started talking about. And as soon as you start writing apply rules and, and all that, now yeah. you are writing CSS. Which so. is fine, right? But you have to be writing it for the right reasons, which I think is something that people start to recognize when they start working with a tool like Tailwind is that historically, say like you were designing like a navigation bar on a site, right? And the kind of traditional approach to that you open your CSS file, your navbar.scss or whatever, and you create, you start naming elements of this HTML and dropping in the styles and all this stuff. 
But then when you go and look through your HTML and all your templates, when the project's done, you realize I only ever used this navbar class one time in the entire project because it lived in some master layout file that every other layout extended. And I literally ha got no benefit in terms of reusability by creating this class. You know what I mean? So when you're working with Tailwind, um, and this is the reason that like, I coined this like utility first term for like the workflow that we try to encourage, which is you go into the HTML, you design the navbar in the HTML by adding these utilities and stuff like that. And then when you have to make navbar number two, you look at what they have in common and you can pull those out into classes if you want to make sure that they change in sync with each other. And that's actually going to be a maintainability problem, right? But I think what people find in reality is that they only ever make one navbar and now you have no motivation to create a SAS partial for it because it's just done and there's no duplication and there's no maintainability burden. It's just finished. And you didn't have to think about naming things and come up with like, oh, I don't want to call this navbar left because that's not semantic. So is it like navbar brand and then like navbar nav links nav bar nav link you know yeah. like it, oh god um, it's yeah. just <laughs> i'm getting ptsd here <laughs> yeah so um i don't know that that's kind of like what i find happens in terms of like the component workflow you extract the components that you need which in my experience building sites with tailwind is buttons and form elements that's like the only things i ever end up creating classes for because um they're not these like big components but they're small enough that they get reused a lot on the site. And because I'm not always building something where I'm creating a view component or a react component for every single tiny little thing, cause I'm just making a regular ass website, then it's nice to just have these, th this duplication moved into the CSS to be handled there instead of trying to handle it with some fancy JavaScript component system or whatever. That, uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, like, I have, yeah, nav bars with 600 lines of SAS or something and, you know, it shrinks down, but, but it is, it's just, it's used once, you know, unless I have like a nav bar variant or something, but yeah, it's just used once and on, but, and it ships down to every single page, you know, and it's yeah. none of those, those utilities are, are really recycled. I may have some like containers or something in there that I yeah. reuse, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. I don't even think we're going to get a chance to get to any view stuff, but we should say that if you're just joining us now on here, hey, just radio, like we're talking to Mr. Adam <laughs> Webb and, and he's got a, a new course, advanced view component design. So we'll put a link to in the show notes to that, of course. So because we probably won't have time to get into a bunch of view stuff, maybe let's, let's um, spend the last bit of the show here doing the purge CSS thing. Yeah, Cause we never quite got there. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is a CSS show anyways, man. It's CSS tricks. That's yeah. what people come here yeah. for. They come here for the CSS. The well, so that's we, my website. <laughs> this is just this what? is me and Dave separate. How do we? Yeah. How do we like like Tailwind? I, I get you know I npm install it, but like how? Yep. Yeah, like okay, fixing to go to production. What do I got to do? And and I hear purge CSS is a part of that. Sure. So, um, purge CSS is not like a Tailwind thing, right? It's a it's. I, I I can't remember if it's actually a post CSS plugin or if it just uses post CSS under the hood to do its stuff. I think it's, I think it's the second option, but basically it's a tool that you throw onto your CSS kind of build pipeline right at the end there. And you feed it a bunch of information, like where are all your templates stored or really like where are all the files that it should look 
to find out if your CSS is actually being used or not, right? Mm-hmm. And you can also pass it like a whitelist of classes too. If if you have some classes that you know that it's going to delete, that you don't want it to delete, you can sort of force it to keep them, stuff like that. Um, and then what it does is it takes like your final CSS and your all your source files, all your templates and anything that generates templates. And it just kind of goes through it all and tries to find out like, okay, uh, BG red, does BG red get used? Scans all those files to find if it can find BG red. If it can, it keeps it. If it can't, it, it trashes it. And I think like the, the thing that makes people uncomfortable with tools like this, myself included, especially because prior attempts at tools like this did work this way. As far as I understand is there's a people assume that it's going to try be really clever about how it works, right? Like it's going to load your HTML file and then it's going to try and crawl the XML using like an XML parser and specifically find class attributes and look in the class attributes to find matching names and stuff, right? And it's easy to see why this makes people uncomfortable because you're, you're generating these things dynamically a lot of time. The classes could be coming from a variable somewhere, whatever. Like, how's it, how does it know? Is it like running my PHP and figuring out what the outputted file is? Like, I totally understand why people would not trust it. Um, but the reality is, like, the way that it works is actually brain-dead dumb, which is awesome because it's really easy to build a mental model around, like, what is it going to catch and what is it not going to catch? And all it does is it literally takes a regular expression it has a default one built in but you can provide your own and it just runs that regular expression against the the whole file and tries to see does this show up so an example of what i mean by this and why this is awesome is say you had this class bg red and it was checking an html file to see if bg red was used it's not looking in the class attribute it's looking at the whole file as a big string so if you have an h1 and the content of the h1 that you're displaying on the screen is bg red purge css is going to be like okay he's using bg red i'm not going to delete it it's literally just looking does this string exist in this file anywhere it's, um, that doesn't deal with concatenation though no it doesn't but yeah. once you understand how it works you can it's easy to realize that concatenation is going to cause problems. You know what I mean? So for me, the problem like with previous attempts at this tool was I couldn't understand fully the nuances of it. I couldn't always predict exactly what the result was going to be, but because with purge CSS, I can completely predict how it's going to work because it's so simple and easy. I just know that like, well, I shouldn't build this class out of concatenated strings in different parts of the file, or it's not going to be like purgeable because I just know that all it's trying to do is match up this exact string anywhere in the file. So it absolutely has like an impact on how you author your templates. You know what I mean? So if you want to take advantage of like a tool that strips out unused CSS, you have to basically accept that it's going to impact our workflow and how we do things in our right. templates. It'd be a heck so of a to- lot easier on a, on a, on a greenfield project where you're like, this is part of the deal. This is how yeah. CSS is authored, you know, but to, but to, you know, sometimes these, I think these tools are reached for not at the beginning, but much later when you're like, totally. oh crap, we have so much CSS. Yeah. That would be nice to use this thing to help us. And then you're like, it doesn't deal with concatenation or server side state or third party yeah. JavaScript or APIs or then there's this. And so now your config for this thing, I don't know, it just seems like a heck yeah. of a lot of technical and debt to just toss in at the end of a project. Totally. I think that would be very uh, painful for sure. 
because like you said, you just have no way. First of all, you have no way of knowing if it removed unused classes until you go to that obscure corner of your site that your visitors don't actually go to and see that it's totally broken because this one class that was generated by concatenating a column from a database with something else um, got yeah. stripped out of your CSS, right? And there's no test suite that you probably have that's going to fail because as much as there are tools out there for taking like snapshots and making sure that like the visual output didn't change when you deploy yeah, your site yeah. or whatever i literally have never met a single person who actually has that in their <laughs> ci process or whatever like i know the tools exist but i don't know anyone who actually uses it um so yeah no you're totally right that throwing it into a project uh later that wasn't like authored with that in mind uh would scare me and would be like a risky proposition there's a good article about this we just saw one from Sarah Day and I think yeah. recently about yeah. about it that was like um it took it took in consideration these edge cases which mm-hmm. I liked you know it was like well I used purge css and it made some choices but I know there's x y and z that it's going to get wrong so I fixed x y and z totally. which is cool and I'm glad that I was, it's just good to read an article like that that like kind of admits that there's stuff that this thing can't do yeah. that you have to then con- configure and I think that's great but it also means that whatever whatever you did there that new configuration has become like something that eyeballs got to be on forever yeah this project you know yeah so um yeah it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing and that is probably my biggest, the thing that, that it doesn't like bug me the most, but because like we have a solution for Greenfield stuff at least, but that is definitely like an annoying part of this approach to, to styling things is there's not a great way to, to just like prevent the styles you don't want to use from being generated in the first place. You have to strip it out after the fact. And that's when things start to get hairy like you're talking about right so that's why things like css and js are kind of interesting to me in a lot of ways because that does tackle tackle that problem a little bit in terms of not generating css that you don't need while still giving you like an api where i could see a world where one day i make like a tailwind js project that is like an abstraction on top of a motion or something and just gives you all these like little helper functions to generate padding uh whatever following like your your design system scale or whatever and then the the styles that you're not using never get generated in the first place so you don't have to worry about about stripping them out but that sort of approach only works on projects where css and js is even an option which as much as twitter makes it sound like that's every project i'm pretty sure that's like five percent of real projects on the whole internet so i read on twitter unless you're stupid this is how you should be doing projects. It's a <laughs> direct quote from Twitter. You should be using it unless you're... I, do, I feel like if we're talking about the future, I just want like tensorflow.css, you know, that just decides <laughs> what what needs to go and what I'll, needs to I'll stay. train an AI to replace me. I'm, I'm not scared. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think um, I, I like this idea, or, or just from Tailwind, I, I, I like that... You know, if you're a team that does not have strong CSS chops or something, or you just kind of want the CSS done, like you're kind of saying, for the same reason, people a lot of teams like choose Bootstrap or Foundation or something. They just like don't want to do the the styling. They just want to use things. Um, I, I like that you can just edit a JavaScript file, like a config file, or a Webpack config or whatever you're doing here for for the purge CSS side of things, and kind of like like 
get a, a decent like CSS package out of the end. I mean, really great. I, I like mean, this. This is a free uh, idea for the world. People could make really nice styling frameworks on Tailwind and yeah. ship that for people to and use. And we have a we have a full plugin system that's designed to support that that I haven't had the chance to like create an example project or anything that shows how you would do something that full on, but you could a hundred percent have um, a tailwind plugin where I could install like tailwind CSS bootstrap and you can recreate bootstrap using tailwind under the hood. And instead of using a regular tailwind config file, you use this custom config file that under the hood creates its own tailwind config file, but just exposes to you the sorts of things that you would customize in bootstrap. And you could get, basically the same output it's crazy how far you could take it if you if you really wanted to so mm. yeah i think the other thing kind of relates to what you mentioned about um you know teams that don't want to write css or whatever i think like the great irony of tailwind is like it's a css framework where you don't have to write any css but you still have to be really good at css to use it uh because everything is so low level yeah yeah the class names are almost like styled like in yeah, styles, so. almost entirely just single property classes for the most part. There's a couple that kind of snuck in there that do more than one thing, but not many of them. So, hmm. yeah, that's cool. All right, yeah, we should probably <laughs> wrap it up. And again, I'm sorry I came in so late. I, I could have talked another hour about this probably. So, but um, Adam, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. For those uh, who aren't following you. Uh, and giving you money, how can they follow you, give you money, and subscribe to your podcast? Uh, thanks, man. So, yeah, I'm just Adam Wathen on Twitter, at Adam Wathen. Uh, me is my uh, personal website. Uh, like Chris mentioned, I recently put out a course on advanced view component design. So um, that is not related to anything we talked about this whole episode. So if <laughs> you like Tailwind and want to give me money for something else instead, that's something you could go and purchase. Uh, but yeah, Twitter is the best place to keep up with uh, with what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And then uh, my podcast is uh, Full Stack Radio, just at fullstackradio.com. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast of choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And if you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. And Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Hmm, chapter